Go ahead. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's time to begin our saxophone presentation awesome. for October the 1st with the beautiful sunshine outside. I would remind you, please, to turn off the cell phone and that the cost of your lunch today is $11. Please place it in the basket that you see on your table and somebody will come around and pick it up after someone at the table has multiplied by 11 and have the right amount. So I'd like to welcome you to SACPA and tell you that my name is Susan Gifford. I come to SACPA as often as I can and really enjoy the programs that you have here. I would like now to introduce our speaker. Her name is Shannon Stunden Bauer. And she is going to be talking on evidence-based decision-making in Canada. What happened, why it matters, and what we can do. Over the past decade, Canadians have witnessed an erosion of our national capacity for evidence-based decision-making. Apparent communications, restrictions on government scientists, funding cuts focused on public interest research, and a diminished role for evidence in policy decisions. This erosion threatens both our well-being as Canadian citizens and the health of our democracy. Evidence for Democracy is a national, non-partisan, non-profit organization and has emerged as part of efforts to make the case for evidence-based decision-making. This presentation will lay out what, what happened in Canada and explain why we should be concerned. It will explain how evidence for democracy is responding and suggest ways we can all work to restore evidence-based decision-making in Canada. As I said, our speaker is Dr. Shannon Sundin Bauer, and she is an assistant professor in the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta, and sits as a board member with Evidence for Democracy. From 2012 to 2014, Bauer was the research director at the Parkland Institute, a public policy research institute, institute sorry, affiliated with the Faculty of Arts at the University of Alberta. Bauer has published numerous public policy research reports and academic articles, as well as a scholarly monograph. Her primary research in, interests in the environmental history of the Prairie West. So please welcome Shannon Sendenbauer. Hi everyone, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining me for what uh, I'm pretty convinced will be a lively engaged discussion. So uh, let's go. I should begin by apologizing. I don't usually sound quite this authoritative. Uh, I've got a bit of a bug of some sort, but I think you're all far enough back to be safe. So you're the front row, however, we'll see. We'll see. In any event, apologize. My apologies if I do any hacking through this. Um, I'm sure we'll make it through in any event. Um, so yes, I'm trained as a historian and a geographer. I see what I do in an academic context as really policy relevant. And other people have seen it that way too. Uh, I've participated on um, government task forces and spoken to government decision makers in this province and in other provinces. 
And so it was a natural fit for me to get involved with evidence for democracy. And so today I'm going to be speaking a bit uh, from my evidence for democracy hat. Uh, I'm a board member with that organization, but also sharing my own experiences as a researcher, uh, a social scientist, working on topics I think of public interest at this time. So within the context of Evidence for Democracy, uh, where I've been a board member for about a year, I represent a social sciences perspective. A social sciences are an incredibly important aspect of our capacity to undertake evidence-based decision-making and policy construction. Um, and we've been, on the social sciences side, been profoundly affected by what's happened, what I'll talk about has happened over the past decade or so. Um, evidence for democracy often uses the language of science. We speak of scientific research, we speak of scientists. But that language is not meant to be exclusionary of the social sciences. Evidence for democracy is a big tent organization that unites the whole range of public policy uh, research, of academic research relevant to policy construction. So that's important to put out there right at the start. Let's get going. Here's an agenda laying out what I'm going to be touching on today. It recaps a bit of what was said in the, in the introduction. I'll be talking about what's happened in terms of the erosion of our capacity for evidence-based decision-making. I'm going to talk about why this matters. I'll be a bit more brief there. We could certainly elaborate on it in the discussion. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's of utmost importance. I think it's, it's possible to make that point relatively quickly. And then we're going to talk finally on what we can do, what Evidence for Democracy, the organization I work with, is doing, what other groups are doing, and what citizens can do if uh, this is an issue that matters to them. And I hope to convince you that it should matter to all of you. So I'm going to start laying out what hap what's happened, uh, and I'm going to touch on three <coughs> key effects of, that have, uh, are evident over the past decade or so in public policy decision-making in Canada. We've seen reductions in communication of science and evidence. Second, we've seen an erosion of our science and evidence-gathering capacity. And third, we've seen the diminished role of evidence in public policy-making and public decision-making. I'll start by elaborating on the first tier, the reductions in communication of science and evidence. Now this began, this, what eventually became clear was a worrying trend, began in what could have been taken for one-offs. Uh, this uh, political cartoon here pertains to one of these incidents. Um, this is at the International Polar Year Conference in 2012 in Montreal. Environment Canada scientists who attended this event were um, obliged to be accompanied by media minders. A government relations, media relations specialist employed by the government of Canada who were to follow the scientists around, to monitor and record their conversations, not just with media, but also with other scientists. Um, this clearly distinguished the Canadian scientists depicted here in this political cartoon as shackled and muzzled from the other international scientists represented in the uh, white-coated individuals there who are clearly better equipped to take part in the sort of free-flowing dialogue that's fundamental to the scientific method. Now another of what might have been one-offs took place also in 2012 when scientists at Canadian Ice Service wanted to hold a technical briefing to tell Canadians that Arctic sea ice had been documented at its lowest point in history. 
This was an important story, one not just of national but of international significance, and scientists felt they should share it with Canadians directly. In order to get permission to hold a technical briefing, they had to proceed through nine levels of government approval. They made it all the way to the sixth one before the idea of a briefing was shelved. They were not given permission to talk about their findings. Now, as I said, this was a story of international consequence, so of course the story broke anyway. But when Canadian journalists wanted to write it up, they had to speak to American scientists. They were not able to get the information directly from the scientists, the Canadian scientists, responsible for making the determination. So two potential one-offs. Is there a pattern? Well, it was deserving of investigation. And it was ultimately the union representing federal scientists, the Professional Institute of the Public Service of Canada, PITSE, that surveyed its membership to try to find out if these were indeed one-offs or if there was a broader pattern, pattern at play. And what they found was quite worrying. Uh, 90%, there's a number of findings here. I'll highlight those most significant to our discussion today. I think one of the most alarming findings was that 90% of government scientists said they could not speak freely about their work to the media. 90%. And this PIPSI research also pointed toward other concerning issues. 50% of survey respondents said they had seen public health and safety compromised by political interference in science. So this was the government hand becoming involved in scientific decision making in a way that went beyond simply saying, no, 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 you can't talk about your findings, but that in a way that actually puts Canadians at risk. 50% of scientists had seen that. So this leads into our second issue. That's the second attack second type of attack on evidence-based decision-making that I'd like to highlight today is the erosion of our science and evidence-gathering capacity. We'll ignore the funny numbering on my slide and just pretend we're progressing through rather than being perpetually stuck at number one. I promise we're making progress. So the erosion of our science and evidence-gathering capacity is something that it can be fairly easy to put numbers to. Um, for instance, there have been, there's an estimate made that up to 5,000 scientific personnel have been dismissed since 2008. So that's a significant loss of, of human capacity working in that field in a relatively short period of time. If you want to put numbers to that sort of thing, you can also count up the cuts to or elimination of over 200 scientific and evidence-gathering institutions. For example, you could look to the Polar Environmental Atmosphere Research Laboratory, or the long-form census, both of which were hugely significant to our capacity to develop evidence-based policy here in Canada. Perhaps some of the most worrying institutional closures have been libraries. At least 12 libraries have been closed. Their materials, including irreplaceable grade literature, have been lost for the most part. Even libraries still operating have been drastically curtailed in their capacity um, to support public interest research. For instance, Library and Archives Canada, which for someone like me, a historian, is a resource of profound significance, is no longer offering interlibrary loans. Interlibrary loans, this basic function of libraries that make it possible 
for books to travel rather than for researchers to travel is no longer available from our major national repository of printed materials. I'd like to speak a bit to my personal uh, experience as a researcher. Uh, as a historian, I'm currently at work on a historical monograph dealing with the Prairie Farm Rehabilitation Administration uh, from its creation in 1935 to about the mid-1970s. I think this agency is interesting from a number of angles. It better be. I've spent about five years of my life on it. Um, but perhaps most importantly, insofar as it represents an institutional effort to adjust to drought that can provide insights to help governments today and in the future effectively structure institutional adaptation that is likely to become more important in light of a changing climate. Now, most of what we know about the PFRA, the Prairie Farm Rehabilitation Administration, derives from the work of James Gray, a popular historian who wrote in the 1960s. And you see the cover of his book, Men Against the Desert, up there. It's uh, um, a really important monograph. Or another source are institutional histories, so histories of the agency written from people inside it, also very useful. Um, but however, this sort of um, older analysis, internal analysis, is just not sufficient to take advantage of what might be an extraordinary opportunity to help us construct effective and appropriate institutional mechanisms to adapt to a changing climate. My efforts to examine the PFRA rely extensively on exactly the sorts of materials that, on the previous slide, were in the dumpster. As a historian interested in environmental management, documents reflecting the evolution of scientific thought are my raw materials. They are my evidence. Now, erosion of our science and ev evidence gathering capacity as a nation relates also to government funding decisions. And that's something else that it's fairly easy to put data to. So we'll look at that. This slide here reflects federal funding to what we call Tri-Council. Tri-Council are the three, three major granting organizations that support um, scientific research and social scientific research, recognizing we're being inclusionary here, um, at uh, institutions such as universities. So there's SHIRT, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. There's ENSER, the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council of Canada. And CIHR, Canada Institute of Health Research. Canadian Institutes of Health Research, excuse me. So what we're seeing here is that corrected for inflation, as these figures are, Funding to basic research is falling in Canada. Money is being reoriented to funds aimed at development of science and technology for business purposes. Research capacity is being pivoted away from the sort of public interest science that goes on in our universities and colleges. Now, I think it's important to note that cuts to research funding have not been distributed proportionately across the disciplines. The Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council has suffered far more than the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council of Canada and the Canadian Institute for Health Research. This underlines the importance, I think, of collaborative work across the disciplines who all, by all who recognize that policy-relevant evidence stems from a variety of natural and social scientific disciplines. Now this slide here offers some more figures to put um, uh, 
precise values to funding cuts to our capacity for evidence-based decision-making. The figures here reflect federal government funding for research internal to government departments or agencies. And I've highlighted in red um, some of the key losers. Uh, uh, so can, we can look here to Environment Canada, Health Canada, Statistics Canada. It's also important to note that there are some winners, and I've highlighted a, a, a one of note there, Canada's Space Agency has been a winner over these periods. Uh, it's also important to note that these figures are not adjusted for inflation, so that the trends you see there are, um, uh, need to take that into account. So some broader information helps to put all of this in context. Data from Statistics Canada shows that overall, federal spending on science and technology has decreased by 1.7 billion, that's over 14%, between 2009 and 2014. As well, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, uh, reported that Canada's total research spending as percent of gross domestic product, so as percent of GDP, to be at its lowest level since 1997. We're spending about 1.6% of our GDP on scientific research. Now that sits far below the OECD average of 2.4% of GDP. So our current spending on these uh, areas here in Canada is low, not just compared to what we used to spend, but also in comparison with other nations. So what, is, what are the consequences of these sorts of funding cuts? Well, the consequences include things like the Experimental Lakes Area, which was established in 1968 as a research station in Ontario uh, that influenced public policy and water management in Canada, across the United States, and even globally. Now, my own research field of environmental history can, I admit, be a bit of a bummer sometimes. Given our focus on the environment, we can get wrapped up in what we call, as, as historians, degradation narratives. So, stories that lay out how human actions are producing an environment that is less able to support human, animal, or, or uh, plant life. The experimental lakes is dear to me as an environmental historian because it is at the heart of an environmental history good news story. The limiting of phosphorus and detergents based on evidence gathered at the Experimental Lakes Agency has been the key factor in the rehabilitation of Canada's major lakes, as well as major lakes around the world. This is both a significant event in and of itself, and an important reminder that we as a species are capable of more than just degradation. But being good environmental caretakers depends on having good information. And recent cuts make it harder to get that sort of data. So let's move to talk about our third, it's really our third, numbers aside, type of attack on evidence-based decision-making. And that's the diminished role of evidence in policy decisions. And this is evidence, you can, you can look for a number of examples on this front, but I'll talk here first about how it's evident in the elimination of the National Roundtable on the Environment and the Economy. This was an independent policy advisory group to the Government of Canada. They were responsible for creating consensus and viable suggestions for sustainable development. And they did this successfully for over 25 years, bringing together hundreds of leaders and experts with first-hand knowledge in a diversity of areas. 
The federal government ceased funding this agency because they didn't like the advice they were getting on how to address climate change. I think this is notable because this is an advisory body, a successful, long-established advisory body that was put not part of a general budgetary retrenchment, that was targeted specifically because of the content of the research it was doing. Now I'll speak about another example for the diminished role of evidence in policy decisions, and you can see this within tough on crime legislation. This sort of legislation, tough on crime legislation, is ultimately inconsistent with evidence deriving from expert research from a variety of fields and out of step with the actions of other governments internationally. Although examples from many countries and a huge body of literature suggests that mandatory minimum sentencing does not deter crime and may in fact increase rates of reoffense, the federal government proceeded with these policies anyway. This is happening even while the United States is starting to pull back from these sorts of ineffective policies. Pursuing tough on crime policy in disregard for the evidence has an enormous cost, both in dollars and also in human life. So why does all this matter? I've put two quotations here of people who are far more learned and uh, eloquent than I have spoken on this topic. And so I'm going to talk you through the thoughts of these eminent individuals. Dr. Yuba Sakono is co-chair of the International Panel on Climate Change. Carol Linnett is a writer and journalist. So Paul, Dr. Sakono says that policymakers are the navigators. They have to make decisions. Scientists are the map makers. And then Carol Linnett says, in the absence of rigorous scientific information and an informed public, decision-making becomes an exercise in upholding the preferences of those in positions of power. I think that together, these quotations underline the importance of evidence and evidence-based decision-making in general terms. Seeing researchers as map makers drives home the fundamental nature of the work they do. And presenting policymakers and politicians as navigators expresses the fundamental link that should exist between basic research and policy making. In the absence of evidence-based policy making, or in the situation of its reverse, policy-based evidence making, power structures become entrenched and inevitably self-perpetuating. With this track of the general public interest that should ultimately inform policy making. Both quotations, I think, express the fundamental link between evidence and democracy. The first point I've got on this slide right here. There's also, I'd like to argue today, a fundamental link between communication and accountability. And here I'm speaking to the second point on the slide up there now. Most of our rhetoric around government accountability and transparency Trends to focus, tends to focus on things like salaries and expenditures. These are important, of course, uh, both because they draw on public funds and also because they can shed light on the ethical underpinnings of those in power. But ultimately, the dollars at stake in such expenditures are pennies, pennies, compared to the billions of dollars spent annually on public programs. If public programs are not built on a foundation of evidence, the waste is at another scale entirely. So to try to elaborate on this a bit, I'm going to talk briefly about the social determinants of health 
which is a topic I worked on while I was at Parkland Institute. Researchers are discovering that the surest predictors of an individual's health are not personal habits like smoking or diet, but socioeconomic factors such as income, income disparity, early childhood education, appropriate housing, and adequate employment. And insofar as these factors have the most bearing on population health, so do they have the greatest influence on government health expenditures in the context of a single-payer system like we have, more or less. This information is changing how physicians practice. Armed with the evidence, numerous doctors have changed their prescriptions and taken up advocacy for improvements to our social welfare system. And here um, is an example. Dr. Block, who practices in Ontario, also writes in the Globe and Mail to try to make the point that in improving the health of his patients, he wants them to file tax returns. This is what he thinks could be their most significant health action. But our federal government has not changed how it seeks to promote population health or to control health expenditures. An evidence-based policy would target the factors like income disparity and inadequate housing that are the most closely linked to poor health outcomes and high health expenditures. But that is not happening. And I think um, it should be worrying for those of us who care about evidence-based decision-making. Ultimately, functioning democracies also need a third element, and that those are informed and active citizens. Um, so let's talk about how we can be those informed and active citizens. What do we do in the face of a concerning set of circumstances over the past decade or so? Well, researchers are becoming informed and active on these issues. Um, here you see scientists on the march out of concern over uh, the worrying developments of the past five years. I am a board member and here on behalf of Evidence for Democracy, which is, was said in the introduction, is a national, nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that emerged through this sort of advocacy and that is now working um, to promote evidence-based decision-making. And right now, we're targeted on the federal election. Our goals here are to inform the public um, of what's been happening, to offer some key solutions, and we're doing that um, through promoting some key policy reforms, including the establishment of a parliamentary science officer, the implementation of a government-wide science communication policy. We're also working to survey. Uh, we've got uh, a website laying out some of the evidence I've been offering you today. It's called True, North, Smart, and Free. This documents some of the examples of what's happened over the past decade or so. It's available to all of you as a resource. Um, recognizing that that speaks to our current federal government, we also want to position Canadians to make informed decisions about their alternatives. So we um, surveyed the other parties to expand on their platforms in relation to science and evidence-based decision-making. That information is available off the Evidence for Democracy website. And we're also looking to engage candidates and communities hopefully empower them to take action on all of this. Um, the goal, of course, is not just to encourage Canadians to 
get involved in the election campaign, to lobby on behalf of candidates that support um, things that they find important, but also to position all of us to continue this work after the 19th of October. Ultimately, whether science-based, evidence-based policymaking and decision-making comes back into the fold here in Canada doesn't depend on who wins the coming federal election. The responsibility is, belongs to all of us as citizens to demand that sort of action from our government and to make clear that we will accept nothing less. So um, I'm happy to elaborate in the break following lunch on the various strategies that Evidence for Democracy is pursuing. I'd also be grateful if individuals from other groups who are involved in work around evidence-based um, decision-making could share their institutional perspectives. I know there are a number of representatives from groups, such as the Professional Institute of Public Servants of Canada, maybe from the Canadian Association of University Teachers, both of whom are doing amazing work on all of this. And I'm really looking forward to a robust discussion on these topics, hopefully after my voice recovers a bit. <laughs>